if God uses that to speak into our hearts at any given time, then uh, that's great. That's what we hope and pray for, and I'm sure that he does that. So anyway, let's um, pray and uh, ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, we, uh, as we look at this passage today, uh, we, we do pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. You are our Lord. And we've come here in a sense to get our marching orders from you. So, Lord, we pray that you would speak, that you would help us. Lord, we pray that good will come out of this today. And we pray, Lord, that you be honoured and that you be glorified as we look at this text. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, James begins uh, here in in chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Well, quarrels and fights can happen in the church family. Uh, Many years ago when I was pastor of a a church in another city, uh, we were, it was after the service and uh, I was there just speaking to some of the uh, members of the church and we're in uh, what, I don't know, you call it the church hall or sanctuary, if we want to be, you know, like that. Uh, and, uh, and all of a sudden we could hear through the door, we, we, the corridor going through into the other rooms and offices, just this banging and thumping and, and, and we thought, what's that? Anyway, so I went and opened the door and had a look and lo and behold, there in this passage, right, it's only about that wide, were two of our church members, two of the the fellas, and they were punching and wrestling and the thudding we could hear was them banging into the walls. And um, I I don't know whether these were great, uh, profound words. Um, I doubt it very much. I just looked at them in aftershock and I said to them, what are you doing? (laughs) Anyway, they just stopped, they looked at me and then it's like in in a collective mind, they just turned around, ran along the corridor, out through the glass doors and started again outside. (laughs) (laughs) And at that stage, all the other big burly church men went and pounced on them and pulled them apart. That's very rare, (laughs) thankfully. (laughs) We very rarely actually have a physical... Uh, fisticuffs uh, in, in, in our Christian churches. Uh, but mostly our, our quarrels, they are verbal. They're words. And sometimes they might be a brooding, silent tension where, where there's things going on and, 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 you know, the people involved know about it, but it's just this, you know, no words are even spoken, but there's this anger underneath, you know, the surface Sometimes factions can form in the church as well. Now, we, um, we, we don't, we're too sophisticated for, for physical fights. But verbal conflict can be damaging and even destructive in force because as James has shown us, there is a tremendous power in the tongue. And sometimes new Christians to the church or or people having a look at the church can be shocked at the conflict within the Christian church. 
uh, Thomas, uh, oh, in a book, Osgenes, in, in uh, the book The Call, he tells about Thomas Lineacre, who was king's physician to Henry VII and Henry VIII of England, and he was the founder of the Royal College of Physicians and friend of the great uh, Renaissance thinkers Erasmus and Sir Thomas More. Later in his life, Lineacre studied to be a priest and was given a gospel uh, to read for the very first time. Isn't that amazing? We, we have Bibles of all shapes and sizes and colours, uh, but he'd never read the Gospels for himself. Lineacre lived through the darkest of the church's dark hours under the papacy of Alexander VI, who's the Borgia Pope, whose bribery, corruption, incest and murder plumb new depths in the annals of Christian shame. Reading the Gospels for himself, Lineacre was amazed and troubled and he said, either these are not the Gospels or we are not Christians. Because you see, as he read the Gospels himself for the first time and as he took the Gospel, the Word of God, and he lined it up with what he was seeing in the Christian church, he was just saying, hey, this, this can't go together. The Gospels and us Christians, our behaviour, it just doesn't match up. And, and fights and quarrels should not exist in the church. And if they do, and we need to be real and we are sinful, so they will happen, but they need to be dealt with as swiftly as possible by Christian character through love and forgiveness and grace and peace and the desire for unity. And uh, Paul in Ephesians, I think it is, says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort. It takes effort uh, to do that. Uh, James says, verse 2, you desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. That's pretty strong. You desire but don't have, so you kill. James almost overemphasises to make a point how serious our desires can be, how serious our quarrels uh, can be. And in the extreme, people kill for their own desires. And uh, we would imagine, and James doesn't elaborate for us, but we would imagine that James had seen some things happen in the early Christian church and, and pr probably had seen people even uh, murder uh, other Christians. Now, of course, um, we, we're not going to resort to that, uh, absolutely not. But nonetheless, uh, quarrels happen. And uh, what do we do when they do happen? Well, we need to pray and we need to have sensible, mature discussion to try and work it out. You see, the, the Christian church over its history has sometimes, for the sake of its own beliefs and cause, has murdered other Christians. So the Anabaptists of uh, the, the Re Re Reformation of 1500s and 1600s in continental Europe, not, not the Baptists we know, which came from the Puritan movement in the UK, but on the continent, uh, it, when, when the Reformation was happening early on, the Anabaptists, they were called the radical reformers. And for their Christian faith, the Catholics and the Protestants uh, imprisoned them, tortured them, uh, killed them by their thousands by burning at the stake or drowning. 
And it was, I would imagine, in God's eyes, not a stellar moment for the Christian church as Christians uh, persecuted other Christians. So sometimes the Christian church over its history has not always done that well. And even today, you know, we're not burning people at the stake, thankfully. But there are all kinds of fights and squabbles and church divisions go on. You know, we, we could talk about lots and lots of stories. James says, he asks the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? It's a rhetorical question because he goes on and he actually gives the answer. But can I just ask it as a question and, and just deal with it? What causes fights and quarrels among you? What's normally our answer when we're asked this? What causes fights and quarrels among you? They do. <laughs> it's their fault. They're causing it. Isn't that often how we think? What's causing the fights and quarrels? Oh, it's them. James, however, doesn't allow that reason. He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And you see, regardless of the battle that we're involved in, we must first examine ourselves. We need to seek God. So if we find ourselves in, in, a, in a quarrel, and it might be in the church, it might be hubby and wife, but it might be parents and children and so on. Um, but what we need to do, we need to go, uh, pull ourselves away and we need to honestly pray before God and ask God, God, am I in the wrong? Am I in the wrong? Maybe we're not, but we need to be humble enough to ask. We need to actually consider that, hang on a minute, I might be in the wrong. And we need to be humble enough to go and have that discussion uh, with God. And, and whether we are or whether we're not, and, and if we're not in the wrong, but we need to then pray, is there a better way I can be handling this? How can I help to bring about peace? Verse 2 again, you desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Conflict arises because our own selfish desires are not being met. Perhaps it's our own agenda or our own perception or our own understanding is not being met. Or it might be our desire for position or status or fulfilment. And then James goes on and he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Sorry, you do not ask God. That's important. You do not have because you do not ask God. Um, a father watched through the kitchen window as his small son attempted to lift a large stone out of his sandbox. The boy couldn't get enough leverage to lift the rock over the side. And finally he gave up and sat on the edge of the sandbox with his head in his hands. What's wrong, son? Can't you lift that rock out, the dad asked. No, sir, the boy said, I can't do it. Have you used all the strength that's available to you, the father asked. Yes, sir, the boy replied. No, you haven't, the father said. You haven't asked me to help you. And that's what James is saying here. Sometimes 
uh, we have rocks in the sand pit that we're trying to lift out and we can't do it because we haven't asked God. And we need to pray because if we do not, we're trying to do it in our own strength and independently of God. How many rocks have we got in our sand pit we're trying to get out? We can't do it. We need to ask God. We need his strength. We can't operate independently of the Lord. And I wonder too how often we're trying to lift rocks out of our sand pit that God never asked us to lift out. There are rocks there that really have nothing to do with God because I believe that sometimes we run around waging warfare on God's behalf when God has never asked us to do so. And we don't know it because we don't pray. We don't ask, God, is this my argument or is it your argument? There are many ways we can serve God but not one of us can do all of it. So we need to ask God what he wants us to be doing. What rocks, Lord, do you want us to lift out of the sand pit? If we are trying to serve God because we think we should be doing it and God's not in it, we're going to huff and we're going to puff and we're going to get absolutely nowhere. We just need to ask the question. Verse uh, 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. At times we pray to God with our preconceived agenda and we're really praying to justify ourselves. So we're praying with wrong motives. We should not pray so that God will rubber stamp our own agenda or our own selfish desires and motives. An elderly couple lived together in a nursing home. Though they had been married for 60 years, their relationship was strained with constant arguments, disagreements and shouting contests. The fights didn't stop even in the nursing home. The couple argued and squabbled from the time they got up in the morning until they fell in bed at night. The nursing home supervisor eventually threatened to throw them out if they didn't change their ways. Even then, the couple couldn't agree on what to do. So, so finally, the wife said to her husband, I tell you what, Joe, let's pray that one of us dies. <laughs> After the funeral is over, I'll go live with my sister. She prayed her own agenda. How often do we pray our own agenda? How often do we pray and at the end of the prayer we go, rubber stamp, God has rubber stamped my ideas in his name. (laughs) Verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. We can derive a great deal of pleasure from satisfying our material spending or our time desires or our own agenda. 
So we ask with wrong motives. We shouldn't be praying for God to do what we want, but we should pray to align ourselves with God's priorities. And that's why Jesus taught us how to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, we find the Lord's Prayer. And the first half of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus teaches goes like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the second half of the prayer then is about provision for us, about pardon and protection. But you see, Jesus teaches us to pray first, worship God. And, and then seek God about his kingdom and his purposes and his plans and his desires and his will. And, and seek him, Lord, what do you want to have done here on the earth? What do you want me to do in service for you? And when we do that first in our prayer, then when we come to pray for provision and pardon and protection, the likelihood is we're more likely to pray from correct motives because we've already been seeking God. If we, if we forsake that first part of the prayer and we go straight into just praying for our provision, our pardon and our protection, it's all about us. And we might end up praying with wrong motives. Jesus gave us that order first, not for us to repeat it parrot fashion, but he gave us the order, start praying, God, we worship you and talk about God and who he is. And then, God, what do you want in my life? What's your will for my life? And then we can pray for all the other things. Verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Our selfish desires not, not only cause quarrels, but they cause enmity with God. And James uses the word adulterous. And, and he says friendship with the world is like committing adultery against God. It's like us forsaking God for another. Wow, that's strong, isn't it? And so the question that we need to ask ourselves in our life, what are we pursuing? Are we pursuing the world? Or are we pursuing God and the things of God? Is our concern the world or God's reputation and the good of God's people and, and serving God and serving other people? Where is our heart? What, what's the main desire and motivation of our heart? Verse 5, Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? God wants our spirit to be faithful to him. He wants us to turn our back from the world and to turn to him. And that is why in verse 6, he says he gives us more grace. It's so that we can turn back to him. We need God's grace to turn back to him. Verse 6, we'll read a few verses, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. 
Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. In other words, God gives us a chance to humble ourselves, to submit to him, to resist the devil, to come near to God. You see, it's all about God. It's not about us. Billy Graham, a famous evangelist in the 50s and the 60s, very well known at the time, world famous he was. It's told by a friend of Billy Graham's that they were in an elevator when another person recognised Billy Graham. And he said, you truly are a great man. And Graham responded, no, I'm not a great man. I just have a great message. And that's what James is getting at here, that our whole life should be God-focused. It's about God and his message and his agenda and, and his will. It's, it's not about ours, only, only about us serving the Lord. Verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil is not a toothless tiger like some people preach. You know, I've heard it be, being preached that, oh, the devil, he's got no power. He hasn't got any teeth, I've heard people jokingly say. He's only got gums and he'll gummy you to death. But that's not right. Because what does the Bible say in 1 Peter 5? We read, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That doesn't seem to me like somebody who's got no power. That's incredibly powerful. And if we follow after the world, the devil is powerful and he will devour our spiritual life. He will devour our relationship with God. But if we resist the devil, then he will flee from us. Friends, if you pursue a love affair with the things of the world, the devil is powerful and he will try and bring down your Christian faith. So we need to resist the devil and then he will flee from us because we are powerful in the Lord. God is within us and greater is God in us than he who is in the world. That's what the scriptures tell us. But how do we resist the devil? Well, it's not by binding the devil. Some people preach that you just go around and you speak into the air, devil, I bind you. Demons, I bind you. That's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us to go around and speak into the air, speaking to uh, the, the devil and to demons. That's, that's um, never what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't tell us to concentrate on the demonic. The Bible always tells us to focus upon the Lord. Some people say, oh, you do spiritual mapping. Um, and and uh, I don't know if you've heard of it or not, but in case you have, uh, where they say, oh, you, 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 if you're trying to evangelise an area, do all this research into it, into the history, and you have a look at it, and you see if you can identify the demons and the spirits that are over that area, and then you can bind them. That's not in the Bible. We're never taught to do that. Our focus always in resisting the devil it's not actually to look at the devil, but it's to look to God. 
always our focus is upon the Lord. And you see, how is this packaged in James when he says resist the devil? We see it in verse 7 8. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. You see, resisting the devil is packaged between submitting to God and coming near to God and he will come near to you. Our focus must always be on God. And, and even in mission, the answer lies in drawing people to God, not chasing them away from the devil. In mission, our, our job isn't to chase people away from their evil practices, but our job is to draw them to the Lord. And as they come to the Lord, then the evil practices will be dealt with. Verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. What a great promise that is. Because remember the parable of the prodigal son where the prodigal comes back and the father who's representing God, he sees, he sees the repentant son coming back and the Bible says he runs out to meet him and he embraces him and he throws a party. That's what James is saying here. Come near to God and he will come near to you. What a great promise that is for us today. Regardless of what you're going through, if you come near to God, he will come near to you. He will step into your situation. If you're in a quarrel, if you're in a fight, if you're in a situation you don't want to be in, come near to God and he will come near to you. Allow God into that situation and God will come and he will help you in your time of need. Verse 8, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Coming near to God means that we should stop sinning or at least try to stop sinning. We should turn from the world. Um, it, when, when I was pastoring a church, I, I used to see... Um, because I lived near the casino, and, and I used to see sometimes driving along uh, one of the church couples, the older couples, driving back out of the casino grounds. And I saw this a few times anyway. I, uh, then I pieced a few things together, and I realised that the hubby was going to pick up the lady, because several times a week, this most spiritual, beautiful of ladies in the church would spend days every week playing the pokies. And, and, and you see, James here is saying, don't be double-minded. Don't serve God and serve the world. Another guy in the church, he's a reporter, and he said to me, Pastor, I have to go out sometimes and report on the horse races. Don't ask me who I see there betting on the horses. And so I never asked him. Maybe I should have, but I didn't. I, I don't think I wanted to know. Uh, but the thing is, James, he's saying here, don't be double-minded. Just serve God with a wholehearted conviction and leave behind the world. He says, and grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's weird, isn't it? Because often we're told to be joyful and to be cheerful in, in the Lord. And here we're being told the other way, grieve, mourn and wail. James is telling us something. And there's another James, James Aubrey. He's a pastor and an author. And he makes this point. He says, you know, I cry more at watching movies or mushy adverts 
or friends' weddings than I do about my own sin. He says, he, he points out that there's something wrong if we are more emotional over sport than our own sin or the things of God or our own salvation. We need to pray in earnestness. We need to mourn before the Lord at our behaviour. We need to grieve about sin in our life because Jesus shed his blood for our sin. God pours out his wrath on sin. And Jesus took that wrath upon himself. Sin is serious. Grieve over it. That's what James is saying. Mourn and wail and and, and, and grieve over our sin. And finally, we'll end up here. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. What's the promise here? That if we humble ourselves before the Lord, who's going to lift us up? God's going to lift us up. We shouldn't be about lifting ourselves up. We should be humbling ourselves in God and God will lift us up. And how do we humble ourselves before God? We need to have Jesus in our life as our saviour and as our Lord. Jesus needs to be the Lord of our life. And how does this fit into this whole context of arguing and quarrelling and you know all that kind of thing that happens? How does humbling ourselves before the Lord fit into that? I believe that as we humble ourselves and receive Jesus into our life, we we receive the fact that we are saved not through anything we have done, but wholly and solely through the grace of God. He's done everything to affect our salvation. And that should humble us. I think the danger here is that sometimes if we've been a Christian for a while, we can start to think that I'm better. I'm a better person. And we can even fall into the danger of just deep down having this little niggling thought that maybe God saved me because he's something just good about me. Maybe I'm just a better person. Maybe there's something just great within me, you know, just deep down, and that's why God saved me. Friends, if we fall into that type of belief, that's works. Then we're saying that God has saved us because of us and because we're good and we warrant being saved. But God saves us through his choice and his choice alone, not because we're better just because he chooses to do so. And friends, that's very humbling. And it makes us realise we're better than no one else at all, but we should be very thankful to God because of our salvation. Because I think sometimes what happens with quarrels and fights, I think that sometimes what happens, people say things to us and we get offended 
And we think, how dare they say that to me? How dare they treat me like that? Because I am better. I'm a good Christian. And maybe God did just save me because there's something good about me. I had some, a couple of guys who know me well out in the work that I do. They're, they're non-believers and they, they took an action that, that was really upsetting. And, 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 and the thing that I had to face was this. Do I get offended because they have upset me? Or is it just simply because they don't believe in God and it's actually about God? Sometimes, you know, we, sometimes we get so offended at what the world does to us as a church. The world hates God. Of course it's going to persecute the church. And sometimes we get so offended. How dare the world do this to me? How dare the world do this to us? Yeah, it's not good what the world's doing, but they're doing it because they hate God and they rejected God, not because they've rejected me. If we're going to fight for God, fight for God, not fight for us, because I'm better. I deserve better. How dare people come against me? We can't let self-righteousness come into our life. Because you see, if we're feeling like that, we're never going to resolve the conflict. We're never going to stop the, the quarrel. If we're just full of offence, how dare my Christian brother or sister do that to me? It'll just perpetuate it. But friends, if we humble ourselves before God, and I know it's hard to do at times, I know we can take offence, but if we humble ourselves before God, if we're offended and we go away and we pray, Lord, Lord, thank you that you saved me, not because of anything I've done. I'm so thankful to you and I am no better than anybody else. I walk by your grace and your grace alone. You see, friends, when people out in the world upset me and they offend me, I could get just so offended in myself but, and, and think, oh, I'm better than I'm a Christian. Oh, how dare they say that? I'm a good, upstanding Christian. Friends, no. I just come back and say, oh, God, thank you so much that you saved me because I am no different to them at all. At all. I don't deserve salvation. I'm not walking with you because I'm good. I'm walking with you because of your grace and your grace alone. I am no better than them and just feel sorrow and sadness for them. Stop taking umbrage, you know, in yourself. Ooh, oh, I've been offended. Ooh. I better stop there. <laughs> oh, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you, you want love and peace to operate. And Lord, sometimes we just mess that up. Lord, I know so many times I've messed that up. And you're all angry and hot under the collar and got offended. Oh, Lord, you, you don't want that. You want love and peace and, 
and you want unity. And, and, and Lord, we just pray today that you help us. Lord, we're so sorry when we get that wrong. We're so sorry when we go around carrying offence in our life and sometimes we can carry it for decades and decades. But, but you say to forgive. Forgive people not because they deserve it, but just to forgive because you have forgiven us. Lord, help us to have great wisdom. When, when we're fighting with somebody, when we're quarrelling, that we don't have a war of words or that we don't shun them, that we don't just turn our back on them and say, well, I'm not going to talk to them anymore. Lord, help us not to be like that. But Lord, we're being honest. We need your help. We really need your help in this. We want to just humble ourselves and submit, us to, submit ourselves to you, Lord, that the Holy Spirit can do a mighty work in us. Lord, we pray that there might be unity brought back uh, in, in, in maybe some of our marriages, some of our families, our wider families. Lord, if there are quarrels going on here between a brother and a sister or sister to a sister or brother to brother, whatever it might be, Lord, we pray, help us to mend that, to in you bring about unity and peace and forgiveness. Oh, Father, we thank you so much. You've forgiven us so much. And we are miserable, rotten sinners. And we deserve nothing from you at all. Nothing. But by your grace and your mercy, you have chosen us. And Lord, we are so, so thankful. Oh, Lord, we commit ourselves to you for your glory, for your honour, for your plans, for your purposes, for the might of your name. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.